Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, April 13th, we are studying Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Jesus stands as an innocent man before his accusers, who bring him to trial before Pilate and Herod. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andrew Jago. Pastor Jago serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So we get started this morning. Let's talk a little bit of context. We're beginning Luke chapter 23. What do we need to know as we approach this text today? Well, we're in Jerusalem, which is where we started in the book of Luke. And when uh, we begin to contemplate the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple. Um, so we're back in Jerusalem, but for something different, but it's the event that Luke leads us to. His gospel is like a travel narrative, which I enjoy. I actually, my wife and I watched a few travel shows here and there, and, and Luke is a really good uh, travel log. And it's a motif that appears in all the Gospels, but Luke is, it really appears uh, as, as, a, as a structuring mechanism for Luke and appears very prominently. Um, so also in the introduction, Luke indicates he's writing to Theophilus the truth that he has been taught, to, to emphasize, to reinforce the truth that he's been taught. So that tells me that this is, this is, this is an instruction, this is a, a, a teaching that Luke is giving to Theophilus, really to all of us as, as disciples of Jesus. So we're going to follow Jesus to the cross, and every Christian's journey really is to the cross and to the empty tomb. Yeah, and Jesus has even said that about his disciples, that those who would follow him pick up their cross and go after him. And so we get to see him pick up his cross in this part of Luke's gospel. So we're in Luke 23 this morning. We're going to divide it into a couple of sections. We're going to see Jesus on trial in a number of ways. So we're starting with Luke 23, verses 1 to 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. That takes us through verse 5 of the text. So, Pastor Jago, this text begins by the whole company bringing Jesus to Pilate. So, who's this whole company? And then tell us a little bit about Pilate. The whole company, I believe, is the, the trial that we have right before this one in Luke 22 in front of the Sanhedrin. 
the elders of the people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the whole lot of them apparently come out uh, to the Praetorium where Pilate is is keeping his uh, court that day. And uh, it, why the big, you know, why, why everybody? Uh, probably only one or two of them are, are going to be giving the case to Pilate. Um, it could be that they're doing the whole, you know, the whole crowd of them so that it impresses on Pilate that, hey, this is a very dangerous person and this is a very serious matter. It could also be for protection. They were worried about Jesus's followers maybe doing something to uh, free Jesus from the hands of these authorities. So if they have a big enough crowd around Jesus, that would discourage that, we'll say. Um, and so they bring him to Pontius Pilate. Now, he's someone that we, we, every Christian is familiar with the name, at least, because nearly every Sunday we confess one of the creeds that says he suffered, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so I wonder, here's a Roman who is a figure from history, a Roman official, who, who is is so worldwide, well-known, uh, but known for the suffering, known for that connection to Jesus. And I've always wondered, you know, what, 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 should we sympathize with him? Should we, um, should we maybe be angry at him for, for what he did and his role in the execution of Jesus? He's a complex character. Uh, he's appointed by Roman Emperor Tiberius, and uh, we we know of that appointment, and we know of Pilate from some outside sources, some outside historians. They give us a couple of instances where Pilate had uh, run afoul of of religious of the religion of the Jewish people, uh, having to do with images and so forth. And the, the Gospel of Luke actually mentions Pontius Pilate before this trial. Um, and he's somebody who's mentioned in Luke chapter 13. I've, actually, I believe this came up in our lectionaries, our Sunday lectionaries recently, uh, where Jesus is told in verse 1, chapter 13, 1, told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, that's, unfortunately, that's not mentioned in any of the outside histories, because after hearing just that one sentence or reading that one sentence, I want to know more. <laughs> what yeah. happened there? But, but unfortunately, we don't know. We just know that, that maybe there's this this bloodthirstiness or this violence that follows Pilate around. Um, so again, I've always been fascinated by him as a as a historical character. I've read the book uh, by Paul Meyer of, of the same name, Pontius Pilate. You know that goes into a lot of the external and internal, biblical and, and outside the Bible uh, sources, and imagines a story uh, about Pontius Pilate, leaving things a little ambiguous still at the end, but it's well-researched, and so that gave me a lot of fuel for thought and my thinking about Pontius Pilate. Yeah, I mean, Pontius Pilate, he is a very interesting character within the narrative here, and the way that he functions and what, what he's thinking, we don't always get a good we can't, can't always see into his mind, but his words do, I think, reveal a little bit. And and I look forward to, to talking about him with you today. If, just thinking about some of the conversation that I've had in some of the previous texts with, say, Peter and the Sanhedrin, the way that we've 
kind of described them is is that we see the the tragedy that that happens with them that they're put in these situations where they should know better. I mean, Peter for sure, he knows to confess Jesus, but he doesn't. And and the Sanhedrin, they should know who Jesus is, but they refuse to believe. Pontius Pilate, I think, is going to be similar to that, where you you get the sense that he knows what the right thing to do is, but for whatever reason, he doesn't have the strength to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a very yeah. interesting figure within this account, no doubt. And of course, then Herod's going to picture into this as well. So right now, Jesus is before Pilate. The whole Sanhedrin has brought him there, and they start lobbing their accusations. What are the accusations that they bring against Jesus? Well, there's three of them. He's misleading. Some translations have perverting the nation. That's probably the most, I would say, unspecific charge. Mm. You know, it's, it doesn't sound, it sounds very general, like you could, you could imagine a whole lot of things. But in general, I mean, as I'm looking at that word and the way it's used in Scripture, just in general, it means misleading. You know, like you, people are supposed to believe one thing, and you're leading them away from that to believe something else. Uh, the second thing is forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, that way, if we have read the, the Gospel of Luke, you know, back to chapter 20, we'd have to flag that as an out-and-out lie. Jesus did the opposite of that when, he was trying to, when they were trying to trap him. And, and this is like Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. These are all, uh, all kinds of people who don't like each other. They were all trying to, to get Jesus to say something. And he says, no, it would render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Just a brilliant thing to say, uh, and a very true thing to say. So that, that charge we would have to, we, the reader, would throw out um, and say, nope, that's out of order. The last charge probably has Pontius Pilate's attention right away, saying that he himself is Christ. Now that's a, a, a word that Jewish people would know, and those that spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, Christ means the anointed. And so they have to explain that a little bit to Pontius Pilate, a king, someone who is going to possibly lead a rebellion, saying you should get away from Roman authority and go with my authority. Uh, so that last charge is rather serious, although Jesus, of course, says not that they, they probably, maybe Pontius Pilate knew of the procession with palms that happened, uh, not too long, right before this time where Jesus is in front of Pilate. I don't know if Pilate was in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, so maybe he's raising an eyebrow, uh, saying, okay, well, there may be a little something to this last charge. The first one is a little vague. The second one, we, the reader, would say that's not exactly true. This last one, you know, we're gonna probably the one that Pilate is the most concerned about. Mm, yeah, it's, I mean, and that's where he he focuses his questioning of Jesus on that third one when he comes at him with this, his question, are you the king of the Jews? But, but with these three accusations, you know, I mean, I think it, what you said about the second one, particularly, you know, that this forbidding to give tribute to Caesar is an out and out lie. The reader of Luke knows that for sure. And you kind of wonder, I mean, some of these scribes certainly heard Jesus answer. So they, they make it up. Even the, the one about misleading the nation you know, I, I think particularly in John's gospel, of course, we have Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth. So he's he's not misleading the nation. And I think for a reader of Luke, over and over again, Jesus has shown that his word 
is authoritative, that his word doesn't lie, even just to, I mean, you brought up Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, he tells his disciples where the donkey's going to be, what to say to the the owner of the donkey, and it happens just as he said. So that that one, too, is a false charge. And the, the reason I think those things are important to notice is because, at least as I read this whole text, one of the big themes that comes through for me is that Jesus is innocent. That, and, and these accusations that they throw at him, they're just making stuff up. Now, yeah, I mean, I, and I, that's why I, I find that to be a pretty key theme, and I think you see it already in the accusations. Yeah, no, I, I like whenever I, I see actions like what the Sanhedrin is doing, I, I tend to say, yeah, those folks graduated from MSU. They're good at making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that last one though, where he that he's saying he is a he is Christ, a king. That is where they yeah. do start to get to the heart of the issue, and and to be fair to them, you know, Jesus did come along during Holy Week and ask them how can the Christ be David's son and David's Lord? And so there you have Christ and kingship put together in the mouth of Jesus, where where they're, okay, now we've got something to talk about. Now, again, as the readers of Luke, we know that he actually is the Christ and he is bringing the kingdom of God in the correct way. But this is what, as you mentioned, is going to raise the red flags for Pontius Pilate because the last thing he needs is a rebel. And, and someone who's going yeah. to lead the these people in rebellion against Rome. So that's where where he Pilate focuses his question. So take us into the that I mean the question's simple enough. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus mm-hmm. answers maybe a bit cryptically. He says, You you have said so. So what do we what do we make of Jesus' response? Well, it goes back to the previous trial. Uh, when Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin, they ask him, Are you the Christ? And Jesus said, you know, all but says, yes, <laughs> he says, and you will, you will see the Son of Man coming down in glory. Um, and then they say, oh, are you with the Son of God? And Jesus says, similar to what he says to Pilate here, you say I am. Mm-hmm. So he's just, he's not all the way explicitly saying, yes, I am. He's saying, you say I am. Uh, but I love how the words "I am" are in his reply. Yeah, I mean, and, and what we talked a little bit about this with his answer to the Sanhedrin. He he ends up putting it back on the person asking the question. Mm-hmm. You know, think about what you just said. What do you believe that? And I mean, I think that you know that kind of opens us, yeah, us up yeah. again to talk about Pilate. Where you know, what are you going to make of that, Pilate? You said it. Is it true or not? And if if it is, what do you do? If it's not, what do you do? You know, he he puts it back in their court, while at the same time making the good confession. You know, he doesn't. He certainly doesn't deny it. He's he is is owning it, but he's putting it back on Pilate to really think about it, and to to do something with it, one way or the other. Indeed, and he's going to process it differently than the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin right. should have some of those biblical prophecies of uh, that the point to Jesus, probably the most prominent, 2 Samuel 7, you know, I will establish your throne forever. And what Jesus had just confessed in front of the Sanhedrin, my goodness, um, obviously touching on the divinity, the divine nature of God's Son and of the Messiah as well. 
So yes, put it back on them. Make you know, think about that. Isn't isn't it true? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and there were a couple of their number. We know thanks to the Gospel of John and and other Gospels as well. Uh, that did sympathize with Jesus. I'm thinking of Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night and shows up at the end of John's Gospel. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know the tomb that Jesus has is one of the Sanhedrin. Right. So Pilate gets the, or the answer from Jesus, you said it, and then mm-hmm. he, I mean, it, the, the directness and the simplicity of, of the text so far is just striking to me. Pilate hears mm-hmm. the answer, is like, he's not guilty. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's remarkable to me how quick Pilate comes to this judgment, but I think that does speak to the, the obviousness of what's going on here. Pilate, Pilate knows that, that Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of death for sure, and he, he sees it right away. I find no guilt in this man. And it, it's just yeah. so simple, you know? He could have ended it right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I declare this man not guilty. Go home. That's right. That's right. But but this crowd is a little more urgent than that. And so they they start lobbing a few more accusations and in so doing they bring up Galilee. And and that becomes the the key to the next trial that Jesus is going to undergo. So we've and we talked about this on yesterday's show. There's four trials that Jesus goes through. Mm-hmm. Yesterday was trial 1 before the Sanhedrin. We just read trial 2, which is kind of Pilate part 1. And next comes yeah. Herod, that's number three, before he comes back to Pilate for number four. So we're picking up the text again here in Luke 23, verse six now. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in, a sp- in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. That takes us through the trial before Herod. That's Luke 23, verses 6 to 12. So much like Pilate, we had heard a little bit before in the Gospel of Luke about him. We've heard a little bit about this Herod, and it's always good whenever we hear Herod in the scriptures, we need to distinguish. So who's the Herod that we're talking about here? Yeah, there's a few of them. Uh, So Herod the Great is famous for his building projects in Jerusalem, being a friend of Caesar, before that, and so he's got this appointment over uh, Judea, and he's infamous, of course, for the incident in Bethlehem, the killing of the children in Bethlehem. Um, but this is one of his children, uh, and this Herod is, uh, is the one who puts John the Baptist in prison, has a very nasty affair with Herodias, and is the reason that John the Baptist is beheaded. Interesting that Luke doesn't go into a lot of details with John's beheading, whereas the other Gospels give us all kinds of details about that. Just a couple verses letting us know that this dude is not very nice. That's right. And and he shows up one more place. And you mentioned Luke 13 with Pilate. Herod shows up in passing there as well. Yeah, some of the Pharisees telling Herod, or telling Jesus, Herod wanted to kill him. 
Well, you tell that fox. <laughs> Jesus calling Herod a fox. So again, at this point, the reader of Luke does not have a very high opinion of King Herod. Yeah, that's right. Although, and this is what makes Herod an, another interesting figure within the narrative, he's got this desire to see Jesus, which, you know, Theoretically, that should be a good thing. You should want to see Jesus. <laughs> but for Herod, it, it doesn't end up turning out that way. So take us into that, that desire that Herod has, because that factors into the text we've got here. Right. Well, again, Gospel of Luke, he kept trying to see him. That's Luke 9.9. 9. And the repeated action of the words, you know, that, uh, that, that's, that is part maybe fascination, like we have right before us here. He wanted... Jesus to do some sign. At the time, in Luke chapter 9, it was probably more paranoia. Here's John the Baptist, he thinks, come back from the dead to haunt me. Um, and, and he just doesn't know what to make of you know, the popularity of Jesus at that time. So perhaps years have gone by, and now we're at the point where either Parrot is a little mad or a little paranoid, probably both. And and uh, I, I, the musical writer Andrew Lloyd Webber has turned this in Jesus Christ Superstar into a very entertaining scene, uh, a big song and dance number where Herod sings, "If you are the Christ, turn this water into wine," and among other things. <laughs> yeah, I mean Herod Herod sees Jesus. It seems as a, a magic worker of some kind, you know, he wants to see a parlor trick, something really cool. Cause I mean, of course you want to see Jesus turn water into wine. That's where, that's where Herod yeah. is. But Jesus isn't that kind of Christ. He's not that Messiah. He's not that kind of King. And here Jesus doesn't answer at all. There's no, there's no more words in red in our text for today. He's yeah. Yeah. silent. Utterly silent. And, you know, so Herod either wants something to hang Jesus on, or, or he wants a party trick. And either way, Jesus is just, he, he answers not a word. But his accusers are there. They're making a lot of noise. Vehemently, I'm saying that wrong, vehemently accusing Jesus. Mm. Yeah, and, and so what, what ends up happening then is the scene, and I I, I try to look at this from, from Herod's perspective. He He's at first glad to see Jesus because mm -hmm. he thinks Jesus is going to do something cool. Jesus yeah. doesn't. And then that delight turns into to spite, into anger, into mockery. And and you start to see, I mean, this has been the treatment of Jesus all along. And now Herod joins in the party. And it's Herod and his soldiers together who start to mock Jesus before they end up sending him back to Pilate. And, and Luke gives us this interesting note, or at least I think it's interesting. He tells us a little bit about the dynamic between Pilate and Herod and how it changes. What, what do you make of that verse 12? I really don't know. <laughs> this is one of the things that, that perplexes me. We're not, it, this is one of the things where, you know, if I could sit down and, and interview Luke and ask, okay, now what, what did you mean by that? Um, maybe people in Luke's day understood, and that was, that was a very well-known relationship between Herod and Pilate. Well, we don't have the, the same knowledge today, and there's no other historical source to give us that information either. 
So how did they became friends? How did they become friends? And my personal take on that is why did they become friends? Because mm-hmm. it would seem that the both would, would be very frustrated at this point. Pilate didn't you know, get to pass this along, probably like he wanted to. Herod did not get his sign. You would think that both people would be very frustrated at this point. Mm, yeah, it's it's a very it's an unusual thing. The only the only thing that I can I can think if there's any theological point, and maybe it's one by way of irony, which we've seen throughout this passion narrative of our Lord, is that uh, you know you've got two men who are enemies who end up becoming friends because of their encounter with Jesus. Now I'm not I'm not sure what to do with that and I'm not sure if we're and this is kind of where you know how do you view Herod and Pilate in terms of their relationship to Jesus. Herod is, has ended here mocking Jesus and and treating him with contempt. Pilate as we'll see maybe doesn't have as strong of a negative reaction toward Jesus, but I don't know that we can say it's positive either. If it, it strikes me as it's almost a bit of dark irony in that they end up becoming friends because they've both rejected Jesus. And I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say too much, but I think through some of the other places where, you know, you think about what does it mean to be among the people of Jesus, you know, then, then you have this, fellowship, this communion together with all the church, when you're outside of that church, well, there's kind of a, there's a fellowship, there's a communion among those who reject Jesus too. And maybe Pilate and Herod exemplify that again in this sort of dark twist of irony. I I don't know. It's just kind of me trying to connect it to some of the other theological points we see elsewhere in scripture. Well, that's really an interesting, very deep point, actually. But not outside of Luke in both Luke and Acts. Luke sometimes makes mention of the different factions mm. that come together in their opposition to Jesus and later Paul. Mm. Yeah, and and I mean it's interesting to see how those dynamics play out. And and here maybe you know Luke Luke has been particularly interested it seems in Herod as you you mentioned several places he shows up in the narrative. He's going to show up in Acts too, which which mm-hmm. is also by Luke. And so this maybe is just part of that to kind of trace how that opposition not only to Jesus but later to the church is going to come out in Herod, and and here mm-hmm. this you know again the friendship with with Pilate. Because of this encounter with Jesus and sort of a dark irony, it's almost like the the anti-church here is yeah. is you know and and in contrast then to the the true church that we're going to see in in the Book of Acts I, again, that's kind of trying yeah. to put some pieces together with this unusual note of information he gives us. Just really quick with that, the opposite too. When people follow Jesus, the women, the poor those that, that need healing. I mean, there's people from every—the Roman centurion. I mean, every level of society, and they are coming together around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, and that's the positive side. This maybe is the negative side. So that takes us through the third trial for Jesus. We're going to pick up trial number four, back to Pontius Pilate on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 23 with Pastor Andrew Jago. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 13th. We're studying Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor Andrew Jago. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, prior to the break, we were looking at the first two trials we get in this section. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod didn't find any guilt, so he sends him back to Pilate. This is, again, part four of Jesus' trial Back before Pilate, we're picking up the text again in Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 23, verses 13 to 25. So, Pastor Jago, as the scene shifts back to Pilate as judge, we've got the crowd of people together, and it's a little bit bigger than before. There's chief priests, there's rulers, and now there's, quote, the people. How did this crowd get bigger? I, you know, I caught that, too. Where did they come from? <laughs> you know? um, so they... If you look at the text, it says they were summoned by Pilate. And so that there's a lot of ways I suppose you could look at that. I'm, uh, one of my commentators said maybe if the uh, Pilate was looking for people to, to, to back up what his decision is. And if that was the case, boy, did that, did that, ever, did that ever backfire. Um, it did not work out as planned. It could be that maybe... Um, they were among you know the Passover visitors who were there in Jerusalem and curious and I don't for whatever reason Pilate allowed them to uh, attend the trial. Um, so and it, or it, maybe there are other people that were there. Well, I'm not sure they, they were there because of Pilate, not the Sanhedrin. But another one of the gospel writers says that the high priests were stirring up the crowd, and I wonder. 
what that was all about. So, I mean, if Pilot brought them there, why and for what purpose, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, it makes sense on the one hand, you know, because he calls together all these people because it, it sounds like, and again, this is one of the, another one of those moments where you really should have a, a full stop. Here's where the text should end. Jesus and everybody should just get to go home because he's not guilty. It, it doesn't turn out that way. But yeah, he's he's called these people together because it sounds like he's ready to render his verdict. And the, the mention of the people, I think, is it's important for us as we think about the passion narrative and all of Holy Week. Because sometimes we think about on Palm Sunday, you've got a crowd of people who's very excited that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And then on Good Friday, which is where we are today, you've got people who are crying out, crucify him. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, the Palm Sunday people, what made them turn? Maybe it's not the same group of people. We, we just need to be careful as we read through the passion narrative to discern who these people are and where they're coming from. And that's part, I think, the reason we should pay attention to that mention of the people. Indeed. I I think that um, there's a lot of things when we... Well, that's the beauty about reading the Bible, though, because there's so many things that when I'm preparing a sermon or Bible study that I encounter in the text that I just haven't seen before. And here I've been studying it all my life and, you know, in in depth as a pastor for many years and you know, now it's uh, it, you still find things that you did not see before, and you always, I think, if you're open-minded enough, have your cha- your your assumptions challenged. You know, things that you may have seen in a movie, mm, yeah. <laughs> or not when you read it in the text, you go, oh, maybe it didn't happen that way. Mm, yeah, that's right. We we always every time we come to the scriptures, we want to read the words that are there and pay attention to what they say and and read them for what they are and and let that shape our imaginations rather than the other way around. We don't want to let our imaginations become so vivid in the sense that they replace what the text says. And so mm-hmm. so here we're listening to the text. Pilate has the group together ready to render his verdict, and he speaks at much greater length than he did before. Earlier it was just, there's no reason he's not guilty. Here he gives a little bit more reasoning. Take us into the, the verdict that Pilate, I think, hopes is going to be the last word. What is What does he give him? Not guilty, or not guilty at least of anything deserving death. And then he says, well, then I'll punish him and release him. Um, so if you're, it's, I think if you're, this is not the United States of the 21st century, because <laughs> if you were innocent, then you probably shouldn't be beaten right. as a result of being innocent. Um so, but I, I, uh, I, I, I've seen some takes on that. I, I, it just seems like Pilate here is, is giving them an alternative, really. Um, so, no, I'm not going to kill him, but I'll beat him. That should be good enough for you. Hmm. And it seems like giving over that little bit of it, you know, instead of just saying he's not guilty, that's it, go away, um, you know, case closed, you know, court, court adjourned. Um, instead, it, it, that, that keeps the conversation going, it seems. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way that I guess I've always thought of that, you know, I'll punish him and then release him, is that you know, if we think about where Pilate focused his initial questioning of Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He seems very concerned with the possibility of riot and rebellion happening. And by hmm. this point, I think he recognizes Jesus is not the threat to start a rebellion here. You know, I mean, Jesus has been quiet. He hasn't said anything to Pilate other than 
you said so at this point. And so Pilate seems to recognize Jesus isn't the threat for rebellion. But then he, he looks at this crowd and he knows, I mean, again, not, not entirely sure how all of them are there or why all of them are there, but they're all there and they're starting to get uneasy. And he thinks now that's the reason, or that's my, that's my problem when it could be a, a riot starting. I need to try something to keep them from becoming this mob that I'm concerned about. And it seems that his solution is, well, maybe if I give them a little bit of blood, then that'll fix it. At least that's that's the way I've always kind of looked at this, what seems like a strange thing for us to punish him. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that I've tried to put these things together. Blood always pacified the crowds in Rome, after all. Why not right. here? Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say also Romans in history, you know, they've, they have valued peace. They'll use violence. They're not opposed to that, obviously, but, um, but, but as long as it keeps order and calm in the region. When we get into the book of Acts, that becomes really apparent. I mean, the, the proconsuls and everybody that deal with Paul are, are more concerned. They're not really concerned about all the religious uh, sentiment and feeling and, and things like that. They're concerned about riots. They're concerned right. about, you know, that there's that there's peace in the empire and that I'm not going to get reported to the emperor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, as long as you're getting along and not fighting, you can, you can disagree on your religion, but just don't make problems for anybody else while you're doing it. And, and that seems to be perhaps what's in Pilate's mind as well, but it's, it's not enough. It's not enough for this crowd. And they begin to cry out all the more. And, and as we start to hear more of their words, they say, get rid of Jesus and we want Barabbas instead. Now, Luke tells us a little bit about Barabbas, but there's maybe a bit of, of backstory here that Luke doesn't provide that we know from the other Gospels. So what's going on with their request for Barabbas? Yeah, I, I go for Luke, I go back to the introduction. He's adding, he says, to Theophilus's knowledge. So Theophilus already has you know some basis for, for what he believes in Jesus. So um, this isn't Luke's concern is to give every detail. Um, so we have to go to the other Gospels who do explain this to the readers, that there was some sort of custom uh, of releasing a prisoner at Passover, and that made people happy, <laughs> and, it, and again, helped keep the peace, uh, which the Roman governor was all about. So um, so that, that was, that was the, 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 and Barabbas, Luke does tell us a little bit that he was in prison for insurrection and murder and the other gospels say similar things Mm. yeah well and and that's where you know with the way that luke's got it here for us you know we know that i think the other gospels tell us that Pilate offers hey i've got this custom i can release Mm -hmm. jesus or barabbas thinking certainly they'll choose jesus the the way that it's written here really puts it back on Pilate as to say hey you're looking to avoid a riot well look who we actually want we, we want this guy who's been in prison because he started an insurrection and he murdered. I mean, this is the last guy that Pilate wants back on the streets, is Barabbas. I, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's kind of backed into a corner because it's the custom and you kind of have to do it. So, um, and, that, and that's what the crowd is, is, is chanting for. Um, not this gentle, seemingly nice, you know, a, a harmless, maybe a little crazy person that uh, the, the Pilate was trying to release. 
In the Gospel of Luke, it makes it seem like it was the crowd's idea. But again, Luke just isn't interested in that detail. He's, he's throwing Barabbas in there, um, really more, almost, well, I wouldn't say as an afterthought, but not really a part of the main narrative. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Although he, he does function pretty important when it, at least in the way that he gets described, I think. That that seems to be what right. Luke really wants us to see is is less about the reason that Barabbas is out there at all, but who this guy is that ends up going free while Jesus goes to his death. And I, I think that's where Luke really starts to to give us some really important theology of what's happening here. But before we before we get too far to that, let's talk about just, again, the mechanics of this trial. Pilate's pretty well losing control of the situation here. I mean, he's rendered what, you know, after we talked about, we could have stopped after, what was that, verse 4, no guilt, end of story. No, they keep going. Verse 16 was another one of those spots. I'll punish and release him. That should have been yeah. enough, but but it's not still. They're now demanding particularly crucifixion by verse 21. That's the way that they want Jesus to die. Finally, Pilate, uh, I, this is one of those places where I wish I could hear Pilate say this. Exasperation, yeah. frustration, I'm not sure entirely what emotion to attach to it, but he. this is like his last gasp, it seems. Take us into that that final Final plea from Pilate before the sentence is given. I hear it the same way that you have it in your head. Why? Why? What? What has he done? <laughs> you know, he's at this point. This is, this is almost haunting him. It seems that. And again, I don't want to read too far into this. We do see some things in the other Gospels, but why? That word just stands right out. Um, so Luke is, is a Gentile writer, but the, the, the place I went to in my mind, the connection I made, is, is Passover. We, uh, modern Jewish families follow an, an order for the, the Passover in their home. And I think it was in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's direction to that. Uh, Mary Magdalene is in one of the scenes, and she's standing out, and Mary, the mother of our Lord, is there. And I think Mary, one Mary asks the other one. Why is this night different from all other nights? That's in the Ha Mishnatah, one of the four questions the children are to ask the, the head of the household uh, so they can recall the story of the Exodus, so they, so they can recall the, the journey from slavery to freedom. And of course, that has all kinds of connections to what is happening here and, and how the, the blood of Jesus will ultimately save all of his people. Why? Pilate asked. Why? Why, Pilate? Because the blood has to be applied. The the, the angel of death is meant to pass over. Why? Because these are events that are well beyond your control. And maybe Pilate was someone who always felt that he had absolute control, that he had the, 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 the authority to rule. He had the um, the Romans would say dignitas, you know, in order to tell people what to do. And this, this, these were events well beyond his control. Maybe he was starting to see God's unseen hands behind all of it, uh, or, or he's just scared and paranoid, or maybe a combination of all the above. Mm-hmm. We can only ask questions because we can't ask him, but he is definitely in the middle of all these events that are just so well beyond his understanding and well beyond his control. You know, and the way that, that it's recorded as you're talking there about the Passover, I, I kind of wonder if, if maybe Luke Luke probably isn't as interested in the question of what's going on in Pilate's mind as maybe we are. 
but but he mm, serves yeah. i think he's he's very interested in us actually answering the question that Pilate is asking as as you're saying you yeah. know that he wants theophilus and he wants us as the readers to to ask and answer this question about why Jesus has gone here what is the evil he has done what what really is going on and the the connection that you made to the passover meal i think is fantastic and I, I mean, it, I think Luke's made that connection for us already. And the verse that, that especially comes to my mind, back when, when Luke was talking about the preparations for the Passover, in Luke 22, verse 7, Luke tells us, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This, this had to happen. The Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. And I think that's part of our, I mean, I think that's part of the answer that Luke wants us to give to this question of why, why does this have to happen? Because the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed and that's who Jesus is. And I I think also Pilate, and now that I'm thinking about Barabbas and what you said earlier about the, the, perhaps the, 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 the the focus here in Luke is on justice Mm. and Jesus's innocence, his complete innocence except for you know, the way in which he receives the wrath of God on our behalf. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is, and I, I think that really ties in to verse 25, because, you know, there, yeah. you know, you, you don't get Barabbas's name in verse 25. Instead, Pilate is said to release the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He delivers Jesus over to their will. So the man who is guilty goes free, and the man who is innocent gets death. And I mean, like there's, that's, uh, that really reminds me of Paul and the way that he preaches in Second Corinthians 5 about the one who had no sin became sin for us, for us so yeah. that we would become the righteousness of God. And you know, I mean, I, know, I don't think we like to think of ourselves as Barabbas. Probably when we think about our sins, we're not listing ones that seem as serious as insurrection or murder. But the guilt is there, and and who goes free? We do. And who gets sentenced yeah. to death? Jesus does, the innocent one. Yeah, in a way, there's this exchange right here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Barabbas... It goes the greater exchange, yeah. Right, I mean, Barabbas provides a... And this is not to say anything particular about Barabbas's faith or lack thereof. I don't think the, the scriptures answered that question for us. But Barabbas, and what happens to him, I think does provide a picture of that exchange that Christ does work for us sinners. I mean, in a very literal sense, it happens for Barabbas. He goes free because Jesus was declared guilty. That's, that's what God does for us and in his son. And I mean, in a theological way. Amen. (laughs) So, I mean, so there's, uh, there's plenty of, I think there's plenty of of theology we can talk about here. Pastor Jago, we got about eight minutes left to, to reflect on some of these themes. We've talked about innocence, justice. When I hear justice as Christians, I think we should think justification as well. So help us to, Mm -hmm. to reflect on this text a little bit. Yeah, I, man, justice is one of those major themes, major motifs through the Bible. And God is always chastising his people for a, a lack of, of justice, or on the other hand, you know, of widespread bloodshed or idolatry, and and other you know breaking of the commandments, and where where the people are meant to reflect God's love and His good. Um, well, oh, you know, they, I, I, recently I brought up in uh, in a in a midweek sermon uh, the the Shema, 
um, in synagogue services, you know, just similar to our, like sometimes we'll have a gospel procession where we take the word to the people and it's preceded by uh, singing Alleluia. Mm. Um, in synagogue services, I've seen that they, they, they take the Torah scroll out of the tabernacle and they chant the, the, the Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is mm. one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's God, and that's the people are supposed to reflect that. And the Bible is just the whole theme is how time after time after time uh, we fail. And, and justice is, is the ultimate justice of God. Justice of righteousness are two things, two words that really go hand in hand. They're, they're really said a lot in the prophets, but everything really comes to that, that one moment in time, the day of the Lord, uh, where he visits the world in wrath and the price that the ultimate justice has to be paid for all of that sin, all the times that we failed to love God and love our neighbor mm. and, uh, and not be the people that, that we are meant to be. And, and our Lord takes all of that. It's, such a it, it, anyone that can't that wants to break up the Bible into little pieces and just can't see how that's just the one thing that's the thing that really well holds the whole of the message together of God's love for us. And you mentioned justification. That's a that's a that's a, a courtroom word yeah. that where you're pronounced <laughs> the verdict that just like Pilate tried to do three times and failed to pronounce not guilty. And that's the pronouncement we have because we are covered in the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Just an amazing thing. And it comes, it's just that the, when we get to get close to Good Friday and Easter, as we approach that this year and every year, you know, that's why this is the, the most important time of the year for us Christians. Yeah, I mean this is this is it. You know, when what a, this has been such a, a joy for me to get to this part of the gospel and to study these texts with my with fellow pastors because this is I mean this is the heart of it. This is where God accomplishes what he's been out to accomplish the whole time. You you called it the day of the Lord and rightly so. I mean this this is the day that has come mm-hmm. ahead of time. So that so that we guilty sinners will be judged righteous. That I mean, you know, again, I, I see the it, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and it, I, I mm-hmm. think you see some of those influence. You know, like you you see how Paul's letters and the way that he writes kind of come into the the gospel according to Saint Luke. And I, I mean, this talk of justice and justification that that text we often hear on on Reformation Sunday from Romans three. Where you I mean the righteousness of God and and how His righteousness was shown so that God is just and then the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That I mean this that just really opens this text up because on a on a surface reading of Luke twenty three, I think you might just say, boy, that really is awful. What a what a terrible miscarriage of justice. How could everybody from Pilate to Herod to the, the crowds, to the chief priests, how could everybody get it so wrong? I mean, you know, like if, if that's all you've got, if it's just that human way of looking at this text, that's all you can see. But when you when you see the will of God involved here, that this is God putting the, the guilt of all sinners onto his son so that he can justify sinners and, and give them eternal life, I mean, it just opens this text up to become 
anything but a tragedy, but actually the Lord's, mm-hmm. as we'll see, it's the Lord's triumph here. Well, I like what you said earlier, too, that we're meant to ask Pilate's question, why? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is there, you know, why, why is the innocent one condemned? And the answer that we get from that is just such a, a powerful, life-changing thing. Mm, yeah, and, and it shows up in our hymnody too, right? Oh, dearest Jesus, what law hast thou broken? I mean, it over and over again. Our, our I love our Lenten hymns for this reason. They just invite us to ponder this mystery and to rejoice in what God has done. We got about oh two and a half minutes here to wrap things up. You feel free to use any hymn verses. I, I love it. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, the the, the the Good Friday service especially is is full of it, but all through the Lenten season. Um, you know, we, we get uh, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded mm. to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. That verse is always, that, that haunts me when I, whenever I'm preaching, because it goes, it, it, it's that biblical, you think of the innocent blood of Abel on the ground crying out to the Lord, and the blood of Jesus also crying out, but crying out so that we would go free. Mm. Um yeah, there's a, uh, well, let's see, another favorite, uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. That's a new one. You know, when people come to our church from other faith traditions, I don't know why it is that we Lutherans have this hymn, and it doesn't seem to be in the in some of the other uh, hymnals that are there. Huh. Um, but that's, uh, that, that was, our organist comes from a, a Presbyterian background, a father was a pastor, in fact, and, uh, and loves some of these hymns and, and knows that this is going to come up every every Good Friday. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, um, uh, many hands were raised to wound him. None would intervene and save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. That's spot on what we were just talking about, you know, and there in such a powerful, moving way, in, in our music, in our tradition. And of course, you have Johann Sebastian Bach, I think his birthday we just passed not too long ago. Um, and uh, he's the one I think of. Now, Paul Gerhardt is the one that, that had the, uh, the poetry and the words, but Bach has put this into such powerful forms and the passion. Uh, uh, what thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine, the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I, des- tis I deserve thy place. Look on with me, O favor, and grant to me thy grace. Yeah. <laughs> what, what language can I borrow for thee, my dearest friend? That's the other verse that just grabs a hold of my heart. And, yeah, it's, it's, it may seem like, okay, you know, these are, <laughs> these are some German-sounding, uh, this is some German-sounding music, and, uh, some minor keys that are being played there, but the, the, when you, you get the right music with the right text, you can't help but just be moved at the power of the gospel message in such a form. Yeah, that Jesus was given over to death for you in your place. What good news from our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Andrew, Pastor Andrew Jago <laughs> is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia helping us today with Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Jago, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, what a pleasure. Have a blessed Easter season, my friend. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 23 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.